You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. You may be seated for the reading of God's Word. Our first reading comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. You can find that on page 599 of your Pew Bible. And as we love to say every week, if you don't have a Bible of your own at home to make use of, please take one with you after the service. We would gladly gift that to you. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his rewards, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The word of the Lord. Our gospel reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to 8. And this is on page 836 in your pew Bible. Please rise for the reading of the gospel. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. To you, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of the Lord. All right, well, good morning. My name is Osin Duclos. I am the Director of Community Formation here at Redeemer. Um, and it is so good to be with you all on this, this second Advent Sunday. Um, I don't know if we've made it known, um, but we are in a, in a series titled Story, subtitled Practicing the Biblical Counter-Narrative. Story is, is one of our seven practices. In fact, it, it is our first practice, and, and all the, the other practices flow out of story. All human beings must, um, must answer th- this question, what story am I in? Even be, before we ask, what is my role in the story, we must define which story we're in. Here at Redeemer, we seek to, to practice living out the biblical story, meaning God is the, the author who is writing the story that, that we find ourselves in, and our lives are spent discovering our role in his story. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our minds be acceptable in your sight our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, so five years ago, um, Bree and I celebrated our first Christmas as husband and wife. All right. Um, and, and with the wedding just four months prior and the move from California over to, to, to Richmond, Bree and I decided that we would forego gifts for, for each other that year. All right. We, we looked into each other's eyes and we said, you're all I need. Right? <laughs> romantic, right? Um, but during a less romantic moment, I, I confirmed with Bree um, that, that we were, in fact, not purchasing gifts for each other that year. For some reason, um, un- unknown to, to, to me, I, I inquired for a third time, for a third time, my darling, my love, my sugar plum. <laughs> Will we not exchange gifts this Christmas season? And she looked at me and she, with a voice of an angel, said, you are my gift. You are all I desire. So you can imagine how shocked I was (laughs) when I woke up on Christmas Eve to find gifts, not a gift, but gifts waiting for me. And when I opened my, my, my mouth, what should have came out was, um, was words of gratitude and thanksgiving. But instead, all I could say was, but we said no gifts. <laughs> we said no gifts. I was like stuck on a loop. Uh, and in that moment, uh, my, my wife of four months st- 
still exhausted from, from the move from California to, to Richmond just three weeks prior, Experience, experiencing her first Christmas away from her family and friends, realized that I, the strange man she now calls her husband, the only person that, that, that she knew for literally thousands of miles didn't have anything for her. I had no gift, not one gift stashed away. And in that moment, uh, she began to weep, for though her, her longing was silent, it remained unmet. Right? And I tell you that this story, uh, not to air out our dirty laundry, um, but, but I tell you this because this is where we find ourselves. Advent is, is the Christian season of longing. Whether we are conscious of, of, of whether we are conscious of it um, and communicate our longing, or we are distracted by the errands and, and responsibilities of life, unaware of our innate proclivity to to want, to need, to long. This is just true of humanity. Our lives are spent watching, waiting, anticipating, expecting, hoping, longing. It, it is good that Christians throughout time have a whole season for longing, a season during which we acknowledge that life is not the way in which we would like it to be. As we look to, to the one who will restore us in the world as we know it to the way that it should be. So, so this time of year, if you're not familiar with, with the season, uh, you might ex- expect to, to hear a sermon on, on like restricting or, or de- denying, suppressing our longings. That is not what we find in the Advent. There, there, is, the, there, there is a misconception that, that a life of following God means uh, that you are not allowed to want things. In, in other re, re religions or even in some secular systems, um, a lack of desire um, is, is connoted, it connotes no, no, no nobility, like it's a good thing. Um, but what's difficult about this idea of, of desire de- de- deprivation is that we want things, right? We, we want so many things, we want all the things. And Advent is not a season Fulfilling our lives with, with as many events, gifts, decorations, or food as possible in hopes to, to, to satisfy our longing. Advent is not a, a Christian effort to starve our, our appetites. Rather, in the celebration of Advent, the people of God are trying to focus their appetites, knowing that all of the other material and immaterial stuff that we can fill our life with will not quench this thirst nor satisfy this hunger. Speaking of of longing, as C.S. Lewis wrote, the the experience is common, commonly misunderstood, and of immense importance. Yet this hunger is better than any other fullness, this poverty better than than all other wealth. In other words, we are hardwired for desire. All right, so psychiatrist Kurt Thompson, in his book titled The, the, the Soul of Desire, describes human beings as a wanting people, 
uh, he, he continued, uh, we are a people of desire. We want things. We, we long for, for, for things. It is primal to our natures to yearn. Thompson argues, but before we are thinking creatures, we are desiring and habit-forming creatures. We are hardwired to desire. Longing is even part of general revelation, right? General revelation is the knowledge of God that is embedded, imprinted in every human heart. It is seeing the the art and looking for the artist. In the same way, every desire has an object to fulfill it. For the people of God, the, the object of our desire, whether we grasp it or not, is Christ's return. That is what we are praying for when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is, this is what, what we long for when we de- declare with one voice, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end in the Nicene Creed. This is what we want. Uh, Lewis um, un- understood this. He, 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 he said, um, what does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing that we were desiring. And so Advent, Advent calibrates us, right? It, it sets us to our proper setting. It locates us correctly in relation to the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. And so uh, our desire, our longing, it's not evil. Um, it just needs to be focused, it needs to be guided. What is unhealthy and even toxic is, is unbridled desire, desire that, that is unfocused or, or focused on the wrong object. That's what's unhealthy. And Thompson argues, uh, argues that we are not only hardwired for desire, um, but that we desire to be desired. He writes, we long to be seen, heard, and felt by, by one who, who we sense desires to see us, hear us, and feel what we feel. Every baby comes into the world looking for someone who is looking for her. To have a conscious, uh, embodied awareness of being known by God is a necessary, uh, is a necessary feature of the life of loving God and our awareness of being unknown, excuse me, in our awareness of being known by God is measured by the, the degree to which we are known by each other. This type of hunger abides in us forever, he says. And it, and it echoes um, what, the, what the writer of Ecclesiastes said, that, that God has placed eternity within our hearts. And so if we are both hardwired for desire and we also desire to be desired, left to our own devices, we, we become like a snake eating its own tail. All right? and, and if this is our issue, then, then what is this good news that the gospel of Mark longs to tell us about? Mark, Mark B begins by, by letting his readers know that something good has already happened. All right, he begins with, with a focal point. This, this work is about the good news of Jesus the Messiah. 
the Son of God. This is Mark's starting point. Everything that that follows is about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But but in this first verse, um, it, it is it is loaded with um, with a claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. That's what Christ means. It's a title. It's, it, um, Mark asserts that that Jesus is the long-awaited Anointed One whom the people of Israel have been waiting for to free them from from captivity and restore the nation of Israel. So so it's it's not just that everything that follows is about Jesus. Mark, Mark is making the claim that, that everything leading up to this gospel is about Jesus. He, he begins his account by making the claim that Jesus is the central figure of human history. Everything hinges on Jesus. Greater still, Mark claims that Jesus is the, is the son of God. I mean, if the medium is the message, then what is God communicating by coming down to earth to dwell with us? So, so Mark starts with, with a quote from Isaiah, um, and, and he, he wrote, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. All right, so first, let me say whenever, whenever a text from the Old Testament is referred to in the New Testament, the, the author is not referring um, to that specific text alone, all right? Rather, the, the, the author is, is also re- referring to all that surrounds that text, right? So think of this quote as more of a hyperlink, giving you access to, to the context of, of, of the story, Right? Now, Mark's readers would have understood this. So, behold, I, I send my messenger before your, your face. So, um, I send my messenger before your, your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, is referring to not just these couple of verses, but it's referring to, to the entire chapter um, in, in Isaiah, chapter 40. It, and if not, it's, it may even be referring to chapters of the book of, of Isaiah. And so that being said, uh, biblical scholar R.T. France points out for us that, that this text is not only quoting from Isaiah. See, Mark, Mark was actually pulling together a, a combination of, of prophetic texts. And, and this is important because while in, in Isaiah chapter 40, um, we, we, we see this, this picture of, of, of a God who rescues his people out of captivity, out of occupation, out of exile. In Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, the other main text that Mark is using, we, we see a, a messenger who is alerting the people, preparing them for the Lord's judgment. So which is it? What is, is this messenger supposed to announce? Is it rescue or judgment? As the artist and, and author Show Baraka um, put it, maybe it is both. 
both judge and savior. See, Mark describes a judge who rescues, a judge who liberates. But who is the, this, this messenger prophesied of, of old? Um, and according to, to, to Mark, John the Baptist appeared. He just appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here, R.T. France, R. T. France uh, he reminds us that John the Baptist was a more important figure uh, than many Christians realize today. Indeed, Josephus, a a first-century Jewish historian, uh, wrote a lot more about John the Baptist than he did about Jesus. John made a sizable impact with his uh, revivalist movement down in the Jordan Valley. He he attracted both people from the city and people from, from the country. And and it wasn't a small crowd either. I mean, listen to the way Mark tells this story. Who was there? Everyone was was there. Everyone from from the country of of Judea, everyone from the the city of Jerusalem, everyone was there. And these were people from, from different classes, right? We have country folk and city folk all gathering to hear from John. And yet, regardless of class or socioeconomic status, John couldn't keep people away. He, he insulted religious leaders and, and uh, offended people in power. And yet still, people came to, to hear him and be baptized. They were drawn to him, not because of his fine clothes or eloquent speech. He didn't have those. They were drawn by their longing, whether consciously or subconsciously, to be right with God. They were drawn because God is at the center of our longings. Uh, 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 The church father, uh, uh, Augustine, said it most succinctly, our hearts are restless until we find rest in him. Eventually, even King Herod had to engage John, all right? So, so Mark said, uh, Herod feared John, knowing that, that he was a righteous and holy man, and, and he kept him safe. He was looking out for, for John. Um, when, when he heard him, though, he was greatly perplexed, and, and yet he heard him gladly. Herod, with all of his brokenness, doesn't even know why, but he's protecting John, and he wants to hear from him. And it was the same Herod, the same King Herod, who would later have John killed. Jesus himself referred to, 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 to John fondly. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist." And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And Elijah's return signaled the beginning of the end. But the people didn't realize that. They flocked to to, to John because of a longing that they had to be right with God. But the thing is, Jewish people already had a system for getting right with God. 
And, and it's not this, all right? Um, R.T. France highlights the, the, this misnomer writing um, as a symbol of their repentance. John baptizes those who respond to his message. He notes that this was a novel and even shocking idea since baptism was, was the means by which Gentiles who wished to, to adopt the, the, the Jewish faith were admitted to the, kingdom, to the community of Israel as proselytes. But these people that John w- w- was baptizing were Jews. And so in, in John baptizing them, he is in effect saying that, that your Jewishness, your ethnicity, is no guarantee that you are right with God. And you need to get right with God. You need a fresh start. So, so as, as people joined him in the water of, of the Jordan, they, they were enrolling in a new community of the forgiven and restored people of God, a true remnant in whom God's purposes for, for Israel can be carried forward. Israel itself is being reborn. The baptizer in, in, another, um, in, in another gospel, he, he, he confirms this, right? Because he, he taught his hearers, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the, the axe is laid at the, at the root of, of the trees. Every tree Therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What is John saying? Judgment is coming. And yet, it's from a judge who rescues. See, God was not after their ethnicity, nor was he after their religion. No, what God was after was giving them his spirit. That don't, don't miss this, right? Um, see, God has endeavored to furnish his people with his spirit. John said, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's program. This is what God is after. He wants to make sure that he gets his Holy Spirit in his people. And from the very beginning, God made man. God, God breathed his spirit into man's lungs, animating man to life. And after, after leading his people out of uh, um, e- Egyptian captivity and into the wilderness, God impressed these words upon them. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the, the Lord your, your, your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise you shall bind them as as a sign on your hands and and, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates this needs to get in you 
King David, when, when coming to, to, to grip with the reality of his sinfulness, he cried out, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God ma- maintained his commitment, promising I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Again, I, I will not hide my, my, my face from you anymore. When I pour out my spirit upon the the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. It is the same desire over and over again. It is the the, the same desire communicated through Isaiah, where, where, where it reads, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on, on, the de- on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and, and my blessing on your descendants. What is this saying? Folks, God's affection for humanity has not changed. It turns out that that not only do we long for God, we serve a God who longs for us. God longs to to imbue us with with his spirit, with himself. In, in In the whole of scripture, we are confronted and comforted by the fact that God's affection for humanity has not changed. This is the message that, that the baptizer was, was heralding. Then, this is what John was saying then, and it echoes even now to this day, that God's affection for humanity has not changed. God, despite all of our brokenness, God continues with his program. Theologian Fleming Rutledge points out that that the the command to to prepare the way of the Lord in Isaiah and in Mark um, is is given not in order to entice God to come, but rather to expect him imminently because he's already on his way. If we desire to be desired then we can rejoice because we have a God who comes for us, a God who wants us. And so don't don't miss this. I don't want you to miss this because here's the thing. If God's affection for humanity has not changed, then that means that God's affection for you has not changed. That means God's affection for your spouse has not changed. We can think of God's love as this, this uh, obligatory fluff or um, th- 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 this, this, this fragile thing, th- th- this losable abstract love, right? And um, we can think of, of his love as even soft or unreliable, especially when we don't feel it. But that would be a grave mistake. God's love is sturdy. It is unflappable. And I'm in this as well. If I'm honest, I often act as if God's affection for me is fickle. 
I, I feel this particularly when life is, is difficult. Uh, in, in the darkest of nights, we must remember that God's affection towards us has not changed. And, and if his, his affection hasn't changed over the course of human history, it will not change because of you. Look at the resolute love of God through the narrative of Scripture. We do not serve a, 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 a haphazard or, 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 or c- 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 capricious God. God. John is exclaiming that God's love for us, uh, that, that God's love for, for us is unflappable. It is sturdy. It is consistent. God has kept his promise, and, and God has, has kept his promise from the very beginning of time. This is what God has always wanted to do. His heart has not changed towards humanity. He wants us to have his spirit. He stored this longing within our hearts. He sent John as a a messenger telling us to get ready. And now, now he has come for us in Christ Jesus to fulfill his commitment to us, namely filling us with his Holy Spirit. Though we don't deserve it. So get ready. He's coming like he said he would. This is what Mark, Isaiah, and John were all saying. This is what they were getting at. This is what they want us to know in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of of, of the battle, that God's affection for you remains. And so respond to him. Um, I, I think of the, uh, of the movie scenes when, 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 a, when a woman realizes how profoundly loved she is, um, and, and then a, a chorus of friends or sometimes even strangers, they, they implore her to, to, to go to her lover, right? They say, go to him, right? And then, and then she, like, runs over to, to him, right? Um, this is kind of... I'm not saying this is best captured in Friends, but uh, in the sitcom Friends, um, in the 90s sitcom Friends, um, this is captured when, when Rachel realizes that, that Ross had desired her all along and that he was eager to take her to, to prom. Do, do you guys re- remember this? Are you guys going to act like you didn't see it? Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, anyway, so they're, they're, they're watching their, their old prom video, and Rachel sees the, the, the utter deflation on Ross's face as she chose another lover. And upon realizing his love, what does she do? She responds. She, she goes to him. She holds his face, and she kisses him passionately. The audience goes wild. And this, this happens again and again because Rachel, um, Rachel just does this, right? Um, love would, would appear to, to, to be lost. And then Rachel would discover the depth of, of Ross's love for, 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 for her. And then, and then, he would, then, then she would go to him. And this is, in God, we have a much greater love. We have a God who desires us. And so we now are implored to go to him. And here's how. Here's how. Um, number one, live a life of repentance. Live a life of 
repentance. This is not a one-time, Lord, thank you for, um, for the forgiveness of my sins. No, we, we live a lifestyle, a lifestyle. We practice a lifestyle in which we repent when we have sinned against God or our fellow man, all right? Um, and then, then after we, we've repented for, for that, we, then, we live as if that is true. We live as if we did not want to do that thing. The way John puts it is, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is how you prepare your, your, yourself for the coming of the Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned us um, that, that, that the, the celebration of Advent is possible only for those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Friends, is that you? Do you recognize your need? Are you, are you poor and, and needy? Fleming Rutledge r- r- reminds us that all the, the, the Advent preparation in the world would not be enough unless God were favorably disposed to us in the first place. Good news. He is. He is. God is inclined towards you. More than inclined, God is near you. Uh, he is called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. In, in, in a minute, we're, we're going to, to sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. But I want you to reflect on the lyrics. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O, o come thy, that thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory over the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Folks, pay attention to these words. These, are, these words are not necessarily just a song, just a, 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 a posture of worship to the Lord. This is a call to us all for us to recognize that, that Emmanuel comes for us, for us to, to rejoice, knowing that though we were captive, he frees us. Though, um, though Satan would, would, would seek to, to, to have dominion over us, no, he has freed us from Satan's tyranny because we belong to him. And so we, we exclaim, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, because we know that he's coming for us again. Lord, hasten the day. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.